We're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're focusing on the seventh verse, um, but we will be reading the entire chapter together. As you turn there, allow me to remind you that our summer series is exploring this question, how do you feel? The question is not merely a greeting, but I want you to think a little bit more carefully about the question. How refers to uh, strategies and wisdom, the way we go about feeling. How are we to feel well in a world that feels so poorly? And so we want to explore through the course of our summer together, ways that Scripture, and particularly the gospel of God's love for us in Jesus Christ, actually equips us and trains us to feel well in a time and in a place in a world that feels so poorly. Another way to ask the question, as Christians, as those who bear the name of Jesus, is How ought we to feel? Now, that's a strange question for us because as those who bear the name of Jesus Christ, we actually bear a moral obligation to feel well in a world that feels so poorly. How ought we to bear the name of Jesus well in a world with such distorted and misdirected passions? Given what we know about ourselves, given what we know about our world, given what we know about life in our world, and what we know about the life, suffering, death, resurrection, and reign of Jesus, how shall we feel well among a people who are blinded and bound by their own feelings run amok? Because the life, suffering, and death, and resurrection, and reign of Jesus, because of that, we now have new options. We now have new resources for living faithfully and for feeling well as fallen people in a fallen world during deeply discouraging times. So with that brief intro reminder of the summer series, allow me to launch right into um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to read the entire chapter. Backing up and starting, getting a running start with verse 18 of chapter 3. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Painful words. In, this, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. To refocus on that that one verse right in the middle. But we have this treasure in jars of clay in order to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us, his people, today. So let's go to him in prayer. Grant to us courage, O Father, to hear you speak. Grant to us courage, O Father, to believe what you speak. Grant us courage, O Father, to be changed by what you speak. Feast us upon your truth. Rescue us from error. For we pray it as your children coming in the name of your living and reigning Son, Jesus. Amen. I've been... I've been a pastor now for about 15 years, as most of you in this room know, and there's a pattern that I've discovered, and that pattern is this. Whatever topic, at whatever point that it was decided that that would be the topic, whatever passage that, would, that was decided that that would, that would be preached on any given week, usually ends up being the very thing that the Spirit wants to work on me.
whatever it has been, whether it's confession or discouragement as in today or hope or joy. And so I've decided that the next time I preach, I'm going, the topic is going to be how to steward vast amounts of wealth. And so begins our capital campaign. <laughs> yeah, so my guess is, has, has anyone else ever experienced discouragement? Yeah, just, just show of hands. There's one or two of you there. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah, so I think we all discour- the experience discouragement. And I don't know about you, but one of my favorite hymns, one that we actually just heard played a little bit earlier... Is entitled, His Eye is on the Sparrow. Isn't that a great hymn? Love that hymn. I do love that hymn. I really do. It reminds me of the things that I regularly overlook or the things that I am regularly ignoring or the things that I am regularly forgetting in the midst of discouragement. Whether it's in the midst of relationships and responsibilities that press upon me but do not crush or circumstances and conversations that afflict whether they, however, in whatever way and to whatever extent they expose my lack of wisdom or my lack of strength or my lack of stamina or my lack of courage, my lack of compassion or my lack of patience and forces me, these circumstances forcing me to reckon with the fact that my resources are woefully inadequate for what I find that I am called to do. Life can wear you down. Circumstances and conversations, responsibilities and relationships press upon you and they stretch you, they push you this way and they pull you that way and your strength fades and your patience runs thin. Our plans, we find, are frustrated by missed deadlines or miscommunication or perhaps even they implode altogether. And so we come to our wit's end trying to wisely and tenderly and compassionately parent young ones and perhaps older ones. Our best efforts at caring and communication seem to run off the rails. Sometimes I need to be reminded of the things that I lose sight of. The things that I overlook, the things that I willfully ignore. I appreciate that song, but I have not always understood or appreciating, appreciated the opening question of the hymn. Do you remember it? Why should I be discouraged? It's hard to hear that question in the midst of discouragement because, after all, the fact is I am discouraged. Have you ever felt that way? And... I can give you plenty of good reasons why I'm discouraged, as I'm sure that you can for me. You see, life as a fallen human being living and working among fallen people in a fallen world gives us ample opportunity to be discouraged. And so you ask me, why should you be discouraged? 
seems to suggest that I have no good or understandable reason to be discouraged. And so now I feel discouraged that I'm discouraged. And it's not just a funny little comment, because I navigate this regularly with people, where they feel this enormous weight of guilt because they feel discouraged. Man, I, I can't even do my fallenness well. You ever felt that? I can't even do my sinfulness well. You see, brothers and sisters, discouragement as fallen people in a fallen world is simply an unavoidable fact of life. So I think the more helpful question, which actually precedes the process through which that wonderful hymn leads us, is this. How shall I be discouraged? Because that's really the question. How can we be discouraged faithfully? Given what we know about ourselves and our circumstances and our reigning king, how can we be discouraged well? Since I am a fallen human being who has been bought and washed clean and is being made new in a fallen world among a fallen people, how shall I faithfully experience my undeniable experience of discouragement? The question that the hymn asks at the beginning of the hymns is the beginning of the hymn's answer to this question. Given what I know about myself, my work, and my world, how shall I be discouraged? Given what I know of my frailty and folly, how shall I be discouraged? As we suggested last week when we introduced the gospel rubric or the gospel lens of faith, hope, and love, we need to first consider what we know. And we then need to consider where we are being carried to. And third, we need to harness ourselves to those unchangeable facts. Paul starts to hint at this. In verse 7, he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. What a great image. Jars of clay. Times of discouragement bring us face to face with the fact that, contrary to the triumphalistic Superman myths with which we are trained to view ourselves and our abilities, we are in fact but jars of clay. When I was single, I graduated and was graduated for some six years living as a single guy, and I thought, now... I got it. Now I know how to do life. I can do it well. I'm so good and so wise and so godly. So I got married. And then I quickly learned 
by the testimony of my dear wife that I'm not so wise and not so godly. But we were married without children for six years and we figured it out. With her wisdom and my wisdom, nothing could stop us. So we had kids. Three kids, no more. Because the fact is that life unfolds in such a way as to disabuse us of the myths, the Superman myths with which we are raised. And we realize that every season and every turn, we are but jars of clay. In fact, seasons of discouragement, maybe they're an hour, a day, a, a week, a year to maybe the 10 years, are designed, in fact, to awaken in us inklings, latent desires, a sort of hunger and thirst for something more. More wisdom. <laughs> Do you ever find yourself looking at your children across the dining room table and just say, I just don't have the wisdom for this. I just don't know. I just don't, I just don't know what to say anymore. That's right. I, I, will, um, I will not um, discourage you anymore, Gareth. The day is coming. The day is coming when you will be, uh, when you will not lack wisdom. <clears throat> Come quickly. They are designed to awaken in us an awareness of the limitations of our own resources, so that we may reach beyond ourselves. Graham, I didn't touch base with you, buddy. Do you remember what we talked about? Are you ready for it? No? All right, all right. Graham and Ollie got to go to Hidden Hollow this week. And um, the speaker was speaking about one of my great missionary heroes, Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was that great missionary states, statesman to China, and he is famous for this saying, God's work done in God's way, will never lack for God's resources. Isn't that a great line? My problem, though, is that I regularly think I am called to do God's work in my way with my resources. And in case you didn't know, that's discouraging. And sometimes we believe that the gift of Jesus, that the good news of the gospel, is that we get to do my work in my way with God's resources. And in case you didn't know, that's discouraging. More insidiously, though, we sometimes find that we sincerely believe ourselves to be about God's work in our way in order to secure for ourselves God's resources. And in case you didn't know, that's discouraging, too. Because often we find ourselves focusing on one or the other and forgetting another part of it. And so often we become discouraged because, as Martin Lloyd-Jones suggests, we are, in fact, partway Christians. Like the man healed by Jesus in two stages, who was content to see men but moving about as trees. 
We are content to know by faith what Jesus did, but we lose sight by faith of what he is doing and where he is taking us. We are confident of our eternal destination on the one hand while ignoring our present obligations and gifts. We are quite comfortable in his loving presence but are not quite sure how we got there or why he would even delight to call us his children. We are quite content to lay hold of our faith or our hope or the love of Christ but find it difficult to hold all three. But if you lose one, you lose them all. Because they all three are the good news of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. Discouragement, in other words, is what it feels like when we encounter the gap between who we are, who we want to be, and further, who we are being called to be. Or it's what we experience when we experience the excruciating gulf between the way things are, the way we want things to be, and the way they will be one day. The pain of that gap is what we call discouragement. And like the ability to feel pain itself, discouragement is a gift of grace. Because it alerts us to some of the fatal imbalances in our soul. What am I losing sight of? What have I forgotten? What do I need to be remember? What do I need to remember? What do I need to be reminded of by God's people? We have this treasure, Paul says, in jars of clay. And we feel that. What is this treasure? Paul has been referring to it throughout. But in short, it is the beauty and the bounty of God's own glorious and peacemaking love in Jesus Christ. And so as we think about this treasure, we need to think about what is it that we know about this treasure And what is it about this treasure? Why have we been entrusted with this treasure? Where is it taking us? What is its end? What is its goal? What do we know about it? Throughout this letter, Paul has been um, creating a vision of this treasure. In chapter 2 and verse 14, he speaks of the triumphal procession that we are being led in. The fact is that King Jesus, by his love, has secured, has won a victory. And we are gathered in this room. We bear his name because we are being led now in triumphal procession after that victory. What is that victory? The victory is that we have been redeemed from slavery. The debt has been paid. The shackles have been burst open. And now we can walk like the human beings that we were designed to walk like. Men and women who marvel and worship the living King. And we walk in triumphal procession with Him. No more guilt. Say what you want to say, onlookers. 
My king has won the victory. In chapter 3 and verse 18, he speaks about being transformed into the, Im, into the image from one degree of glory into another degree of glory. It's not simply that the debt was paid, but the debt was paid and we've been washed clean. The clothes have been changed. We no longer wear the garbs of a slave. We are being cleansed. We are moving from one degree of glory to another. We have no more shame. Not only so, he says even in our chapter here, verse 14, he who raised the Lord, the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. We get to walk without shame, without guilt, in the presence of Jesus. And he delights for that to be the case. He delights for the world to know these are my captive children. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but that astounds me. I can hardly be seen with myself in public. But that the reigning king of all glory would, be delight, would delight to be publicly known as my king and me as his son is a glorious thing indeed. It is a certain secured delight and welcome. You will never, ever hear Jesus say unless the enemy puts it in your ears. Oh, you again. Because he delights in you to welcome you. And so by that, verse 16, our inner being, our inner self is being renewed day by day. What do you know? What does the cross of Jesus Christ tell you? That you've been bought at a price, you are no longer your own but he delights to own you publicly as his. You walk through this world in triumphal procession as his child, the child of the king. It's great to know that, but then the question comes up, where are we going? Because this march is getting kind of long. Where are we headed? Well, Paul has been referring to this treasure. In verse 7, he calls it uh, this treasure. In verse 1, he has called it this ministry. In chapter 3 and verse 12, he has called it this hope. What is this hope, this ministry, this treasure? 
Where is he taking us? Well, in chapter 4 and verse 4, he says that he is guiding us by the glory of Christ, the image of God, the knowledge. He is guiding us into the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Think about this for just a moment. Please, by the Spirit, rescue yourself from being far too familiar with the glory of this gospel. No man shall see the glory of God and live. Moses went and he beheld the glory, just the backside. And that was so amazing that he had to then veil his face. Because the people could not take it. And that is a derivative glory. As we mark, march in triumphal procession with the King of glory, we are being marched into the very presence of the God of glory. That's where we're going. That's what he's doing. That we may behold, verse 5, Jesus Christ as Lord. Not just as a buddy, but as the Lord. King of kings and Lord of lords. The one who alone is worthy to receive all worship. Verse 14 says, he who raised the Lord, the Lord Jesus will raise us also with him. We are being marched into new life. Verse 17, Paul says that this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight. Of glory. This treasure that we that has been entrusted to us is the greater glory, the surpassing power of God's love in Jesus. And this is why in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prays that we would be strengthened by the Spirit to know the glory and the power of this great love. Because it will undo you. It's excruciating. And it's exhausting. And sometimes discouraging. But because that is our faith and because that is our hope, we do not lose heart. Verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Verse 1 of chapter 4 we do not lose heart. Why? When I was in Ghana, I got to go on the canopy tour. I think I might have said something like that. The canopy tour is this swinging bridge tour that walks through the, the upper canopy of the rainforest in the southern part of Ghana. It's a swinging bridge, a rope bridge, attached at one end and at the other and nothing in between. And so if any of you have ever walked a swinging bridge, you know that 
the first time you do it is a little bit nerve-wracking. And in the case of the canopy tour, the first, the way the bridge is designed, when you take the first step onto the bridge and it feels the weight of your body, the bridge goes, kadunk. And so walking across such a bridge can make you really nervous. <laughs> you get wobbly feet. Some of us have friends who like to bounce on the bridge. Some of us are such friends. You get light head, racing heart, wild, paralyzing what-if imaginations. I'm so thankful for um, Jackie Chan movies so that I know exactly what to do if the bridge breaks. Sometimes because of that, you stumble or you fall. As we were walking across the bridge, the guy in front of me named Ray was really, really nervous. And I said, Ray, this bridge is solid. Do you mind if I start jumping up and down? He says, Danny, if you do it, I will kill you. <laughs> he was preaching grace that week. But here's the thing. As terrifying as those bridges are, why are they so terrifying? They're terrifying because they feel so insecure in the middle. But they work because they are secured at both ends. They are secured behind you and they are secured in front of you. You can look behind you and see that they are secured. You can look ahead of you and know that they are secured. The security of the bridge has to do with the anchors that are secured behind you and before you. And so you don't lose heart. Even though you may be nervous in the middle. And discouragement, you see, is an unavoidable part of walking across such a bridge as fallen people in a fallen world. Discouragement is what we feel as we experience what Paul calls our outer self wasting away in verse 16. Our outer self is not merely our physicality, but it's what Paul calls elsewhere the flesh. The whole matrix of values and vocabulary and wisdom and strategies and physicality with which we live and engage as fallen people in a fallen world. Our flesh, you see, is weakened our wisdom is proven inadequate. Our strength and stamina fall short. Our perspectives prove faulty. As we, in other words, come face to face with the limitations of our humanity and the problems of our sinfulness, we grieve and we groan and we become discouraged. So by discouragement, we are shown our own inabilities and our own inadequacies so that we may more fully, more clearly, more confidently refocus and reset our faith and our hope on Christ. You see, Paul says in verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay in order to, in order to show that the surpassing power belongs to God. Wait a minute. In order to? Are you telling me 
that someone has designed my discouragement to accomplish his tasks and his goals and his objectives? Yes. That's what we're saying. Discouragement is not only unavoidable, but is part of the design of God's glory. It's part of the intent of God's glory. To set his treasure in jars of clay is part of Christ's strategy to manifest the life of Jesus in our mortal flesh. It's part and parcel of God's design and intent to cultivate in us and display through us the surpassing glory of God's wisdom, of God's love in Jesus Christ, not our own. Brothers and sisters, hear me. This is deeply counterintuitive to our North American Disney-fied sensibilities about the so-called good life. And if we take Paul seriously in what he is saying here, it's deeply offensive. By design, Christ intends to expose and leverage the weakness of our flesh, the frailty of our strategies, in order to cultivate in us and reveal through us the glory of His resurrection. You see, it's as we revel in the wonder of that mystifying wisdom that we discover and know the increasing love and life of the risen and reigning King. This is why Paul learns contentment in all circumstances. This is why he learned to rejoice in all things. Because his deepest desire was not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Because that is life. That is happiness. That is comfort. That is hope. As N.T. Wright suggests, Paul knew that if you want to know and experience the resurrection life here and now... Brothers and sisters, we must also be prepared to join him in Gethsemane and walk with him to the cross. Which gives us a window into understanding how to encourage or how to be encouraged. If our discouragement is a function of relying on ourself and losing sight of Christ, then encouragement is not about refocusing one another on ourselves. If I tell you I'm discouraged, please don't tell me, oh, Dan, you're great. Because I know that's not true. But if I'm discouraged, would you, as a good friend did for me this week, remind me that may be all true, but Christ is living and Christ reigns. Christ is great. He is doing his work, and he will bring it to perfect completion. You see, brothers and sisters, if, if in the name of encouragement we just turn our eyes back on ourselves, we set each other up for repeated failure. But if in the name of encouragement we say, yes and amen, you're right, you're discovering true things about yourself, now look to Christ, because that is your life. That is true encouragement. 
And this is accomplished by the word and by prayer and by worship. This is why the Lord has, by his design, intends for us to gather on a regular basis, one with another, to behold his glory. It's not the soul filling station. This is the place where we both, where we all learn, one with another, the language of courage and the hope of courage and the substance of courage and the love of courage. It's this. The crucified Christ has been buried and raised again. And that is the source of our courage. Brothers and sisters, you have to understand. That gives us a whole new way of dealing with the discouragements that are unavoidable part of our life. How shall we be discouraged? The why is pretty self-evident. It's the how that so often trips us up. How shall we be discouraged by faithfully stewarding and cultivating and expressing the treasure in these difficult times? In the face of these discouraging gaps, let us name the gap. Let's not deny it. Man, I just lack wisdom for this situation. Amen. I lack stamina for this situation. Amen. I'm pulling my hair out, what little hair I have left with my kids. Amen. Let us name it. But let us be careful then not to dig in our heels like the Israelites did. Let us not double down on our own wisdom and strength and stamina. But let us remember and let us be reminded of our faith, the loving person and work of Jesus that he has accomplished, and our hope, the loving reign of Jesus today to make all things new, you, me, and all things. Both of these hold us firmly in place as we navigate through our discouragement. Our discouragement grows us to know the love of Christ. It reveals to us the strategies of Christ and invites us to participate in them and so grows in us as his people gathered together the character of Christ. And when the world looks and the world wonders, what a strange people you are. Tell me about that. And we say, our God reigns. Let's go to him in prayer.